Good morning. If this is your first time here, welcome. So glad you're here. If this is your first time listening or watching at home or in your car, uh, welcome. So glad you're part of God's worship today. Uh, my name is Andrew Flatgard, and I get to be an assistant pastor here at InTown. I want to share a little bit with you before we have the scripture reading. Every fall at our house, I look out our front windows and I see leaves falling. Maybe you've seen leaves through the window of your house or apartment or condo the last few weeks falling. And I always have two thoughts. The first thought I have is these leaves are really beautiful with burnt orange and red and forest green and light green. And the other thought I have is there is a lot of raking in my future. Now, my family does a lot of raking as well, so it's not just me, but I, also, I have both of those thoughts going as I watch the leaves fall. This week, I got to it. I went into the backyard, and I put on my gear, my work gloves, my safety glasses, which I don't really need, but that's part of the gear, and got out my giant yellow rake in the backyard and began to rake these leaves and to rake these pine needles that just uh, collect in such large Amounts And I started the project with such great energy and such enthusiasm. And I remember thinking, oh, this is rejuvenating. I've got this cool air filling my lungs. This is really good for me. But then after a while, uh, I began to lose focus. My back started to hurt. My knees started to hurt. And I had the thought, well, you know, there are some other things I should be doing right now other things I need to do, right? I need uh, to write some emails, uh, make some phone calls, go to the grocery store. All of these things I need to do, but also don't hurt my back nearly as much. Uh, and so I stopped and lost motivation. And so in our backyard, about one-fourth of it has been raked, and the yellow rake just sits there. Have you ever started a yard project or maybe a project for school? You start with such enthusiasm and you're excited about it, but then after a while, the motivation begins to wane a little bit, and you tell yourself, I'll get back to it at some point, and you move on to something else. This is the story of Haggai, where God's people start a project far more important than raking leaves. They start a very important project, that is the rebuilding of a temple in which God will dwell among them in a very special way. They start they pour the foundation for this temple that they're rebuilding. They sing songs, they gather in choirs, but then they meet some resistance. People start to fight against them a little bit. Not everyone wants that temple to be built and they have their homes to tend to. They have other things they'd rather be doing. So they simply pour the foundation and they stop. But that's not the end of the story of Haggai because God intervenes. He is the hero of this book. He intervenes for their sake, he intervenes for his own glory, and he intervenes for the sake of the whole world. So let's listen to the scripture reading now from Alyssa. Today's scripture reading is Haggai 1, 13 through 2, verse 9. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. 
And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who was left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, into worship today, we bring all of ourselves. And some of us here feel just exhausted by the events of this week with the election. Some feel nervous, some feel elated and some feel disappointed and even fearful. Some of us, Lord, are just tired. We're tired of living uh, in a pandemic and sad because of our many losses this year during the pandemic. Whatever emotions we bring this morning, Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts? Would you stir us to respond to you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever floated down a river in a canoe? I've done that just a few times. When I worked with college students at the University of Memphis, I was a campus minister there. And several students one week asked if I would lead them on a camping trip uh, into Arkansas, which would involve canoeing down a river. Now, I'm not a camper. You may find that uh, easy to believe. Uh, I'm not a camper. I don't uh, have any gear for camping. I don't even know what gear to borrow when going camping other than a tent. But I said to them, sure, let's go. So we go to the Spring River in Arkansas. We put up the tent. We go to sleep at night. The stars are, are beautiful. I close the tent and I wake up the next morning and there's a cold snap there in mid-October. And I woke up to 17 degrees. And as I woke up, I thought to myself, what have I gotten myself into? Then as I began to sit up, I realized I'm sitting in a pool of water. And somehow it had rained the night and me not knowing what I'm doing with camping, the water came in and I woke up then cold and, and wet. So I exit the tent, I grab my sleeping bag and I, I'm just stringing water out of it. And I look up over to my right and several of our students are Eagle Scouts, okay? They're perfectly dry. 
They're whipping up hot coffee and eggs Benedict. I'm not exaggerating. Uh, And at that moment, I realized this is not my scene. But nevertheless, I'm the leader, so to speak, of this trip. So we get to the point where we are going to canoe. My friend Chris takes the back seat in the canoe. I'm in the front. We begin to go down the river. I begin to dry out. It's midday. It's warm, somewhat anyway. The sun is out, and the river is just moving us along. And I'm not paying attention. Chris is not paying attention. And as I'm talking to him, I'm turned around looking at him, and he's just sitting there happy as a clam holding his oar, not paying attention. And the current is taking us, and we're just beginning to drift. I'm assuming we're fine in the middle of the river. We're not. And at one moment, I'm I'm turning around and talking to him, and all of a sudden, I feel this thud. And I turn around, and we have run aground. And we've gone straight into rock. And at that moment, I could just feel the pain shoot up my back there. What had happened? Well, we were just drifting. It seemed imperceptible, but we were not paying attention to where we were going. The drift was imperceptible. We were not paying attention. This can happen to any of us in life and not just in a canoe. We're not paying attention to our hearts, to our lives, and we end up in a place of pain and regret. We may sense that we're not growing much spiritually, not paying attention much to our heart. And and over time, our desire for God begins to wane. We find we really don't want to pray. We really don't want to open up the Bible. And we end up living a life that uh, is characterized by impatience and irritability with others and maybe even joyless living. It's a problem that comes when we're not paying attention to where we're going. We're not paying attention to our own hearts and we end up in a place of regret. This is what happens with God's people in Haggai. They're not paying attention to where they're headed. They're not listening to the word of God. They're doing their own thing. They're into their own priorities. And if they're not careful, they will end up in a place of pain and regret and joyless living. It's exactly what happened to them earlier, and they were taken off into exile. God is gracious, though, so it doesn't happen again. And he intervenes in their lives for their sake, for his glory and for the sake of the whole world. I want us to see just two things from the book of Haggai this morning. First, the problem of inattention, and second, the promise of God. The problem of inattention, and second, the promise of God. So first, the problem of inattention. Much like me when I was in my canoe, drifting along, not paying attention Uh, to where I was going. God's people in Haggai don't even see the problem. They're not even aware of it. A little bit of history, I think, might help us to understand what's going on here. God's people were taken into exile away from Israel and Judah to the east to Babylon in the year 586 B.C. It was in that year that the temple that King Solomon had helped to build 400 years earlier was destroyed. While God's people are off to the east, in Babylon, Persia conquers Babylon. The Lord begins to stir in the heart of the Persian leader to send God's people back to Israel to rebuild this temple that's been destroyed. And so Zerubbabel, who Alyssa read about, is the governor of Judah, and he leads the people then back to Jerusalem with the stated goal of rebuilding this temple that had been destroyed. So they return to Israel, to Jerusalem, they ascend this hill where this temple used to be that King Solomon built, and all they see there is flat land, so they get to work. They start with great energy, great motivation at first. They pour the foundation, as it were. 
But then they stop. They meet resistance. They begin to think there are other things that they would rather do. They have emails to write, phone calls to make, other errands to go, a Mediterranean Sea to visit. They, their attention begins to wane. And they begin to work on their homes instead of working on God's home. Now, we have to think for a moment why this is so important. This is not like any normal church building here in Atlanta. The, the temple there was how God dwelled with his people in a very unique, special way. This temple, Solomon's temple that was there earlier on that land, once held the Ark of the Covenant. It was the place of the Holy of Holies. This is a very special place. And a poorly maintained temple indicated that God's people had a de deteriorating relationship with God. How they maintained that temple and took care of the grounds and the building itself pointed to the level of intimacy that they had with God. If they treasured God and cherished him, they paid attention to the building and the place. So you can imagine what it means if there's no temple at all. If there's just a foundation, there's no deteriorating temple, there's not even a temple, they are ignoring him. They're not paying any attention. And God comes to them, he intervenes. And he says to them so tenderly, consider your ways. Now, he has every right to send them back into exile in that moment. They came back in the year 538. They started on the temple. The action here in Haggai takes place in the year 520. They've been back for a generation. They've been back for 18 years. And all they've done is poured the foundation. God has every right to say, you've done it again. You've ignored me. You've ignored those who live in the margins. You're back into exile. He does not. He comes to them, though, and he says earlier in chapter 1, my house lies in ruins while each of you busies yourself with your own house. What is he saying? He says, you have such nice houses that are wood paneled. Meanwhile, I am homeless. I am a homeless God. Now, why would this temple be such a big deal? For at least three reasons, building this temple is a huge deal. The first is the most obvious that the Lord desires to dwell among his people. He loves his people. He has saved them out of slavery in Egypt, which he reminds them of. He saved them out of exile in Babylon. He desires intimate relationship with them, and he offers himself. For them to not rebuild this temple is open rebellion. It is to ignore and to not pay attention to what God desires. Second, not building the temple is really bad for their faith. They will not grow in faith. They will not grow in love and joy and peace, and patience, and love for the outsider if they're not paying attention to this temple. They are missing out on deeper fellowship with God through repentance and trust and celebration of who he is. Years earlier, the prophet Isaiah writes the words of God, and God himself says of this particular area, this is my holy mountain where I will make people joyful in my house of prayer. It's the Lord's desire, not just that he would be worshiped, but that people would come and experience great joy and would pray to him and would gather around. They're missing out on this deeper level of intimacy with God and with each other. And then third, not building the temple is bad because people who don't yet know God need to know him. And the presence of a temple in Jerusalem was a major means of evangelism to all the nations. So Jimmy last week was preaching from Zephaniah. Jimmy's our senior pastor. If this is the first time you're 
with us. And Jimmy said, God's heart is for the whole world. God's heart is for the whole world. God is not interested at this time in just having a cozy one-to-one relationship with himself and the Israelites and not caring about everyone else. No, his plan of salvation is worldwide. We know that from his covenant with Abraham long before this, from Genesis 12 and chapters following. It is the Lord's will that through Israel, all the families and the nations of the world will be blessed. Have you ever gone to a city maybe you haven't been to before and someone's showing you the city and you see some building there that really sticks out? Might be really tall, might be made of all glass, it might have flying buttresses, but you ask your friend, you're with, what is that for? What, what's that all about? This special temple was supposed to be that kind of building set up on a hill in Jerusalem so that when people came through were not at all people of God, they would look up at this strange temple and say, what in the world is that for? It's set high up on a hill. There are not many temples throughout the city to many gods. There's one temple to one God, to which the Israelites would then respond, well, that's, that's our temple to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then travelers would then respond, well, who's that? And they would come to know the Lord. See, Israel and its capital city, Jerusalem, stand then at the nexus of three continents. The Lord did not set up his people in in central Mongolia. He set them up there at the eastern end of the Mediterranean at the nexus of three continents so that many people would pass through and see that he is good and that he exists. And when people would come through, of course, back then they would not fly in on airplanes and then fly out and not pay attention. They would linger. They would walk in. To the area. They would ride an animal in. They would linger and ask, what in the world is that building? What's that all about? But if there's no temple, those conversations don't happen, see? So at least for three reasons. It's really bad to not work on this temple. The Lord's heart for this temple and its ability to gather in the nations, the outsiders, the marginalized, would be seen 500 years later when the Lord Jesus comes. The temple then has a courtyard area. And you know the story where Jesus is so upset. He comes in. He wants this place to be a house of prayer and joy. He finds the money changers' tables. He finds pigeons being sold. So what does he do? He flips the tables. He yells. And then he quotes Isaiah and says, My house shall be called a house of prayer. This is a special area to God. And so God goes to his people very tenderly and says, consider your ways. Notice the tenderness that he has there. Consider your ways. Look at the walls of your homes, he says. Why am I homeless? The Lord says to his people then, do you see how you are drifting away from me? You're being carried along to a place of pain and regret and joyless living when you ignore my words and ignore my direction. The Lord in his kindness is tender with you and I, and he comes alongside us too now and says, consider your ways right now. Consider how you may be drifting right now. Jimmy also said last week from Zephaniah, we become like what we love. We become like what we love. Our lives reveal what and who we value most. For God's people in Haggai, it was personal comfort in their homes. 
Is there anything that you value more than a growing relationship with the Lord? Living life during this pandemic stretches us to our limits. There's so much to do. But in the different pace of life, the Lord comes to us and reasons with us tenderly through his word, by the power of his spirit. He says, consider your ways. Don't just drift spiritually during this pandemic to a place of pain and regret and joyless living, not paying attention to your heart, not paying attention to what the Lord is saying to you. Consider your ways. It's very easy to embrace other things rather than what the Lord has to say to us. God's people here embrace personal comfort. We may embrace personal comfort, constant entertainment, or even work, which is a good thing. It could be that we value what we do, our busyness, our work, more than we do a growing relationship with the Lord. And of course, work is good. The busyness we have each day, of which there is a lot, is good, but it cannot ultimately satisfy us and establish our purpose. The actor Anthony Hopkins spoke of this in an interview not too long ago. Anthony Hopkins is one of the world's most famous actors. He's reached the pinnacle of his profession. He's in his 80s now. He was interviewed recently about work, and he responded and said, you know, I meet young people, and they want to act, and they want to be famous. And I tell them, when you get to the top of the tree, there's nothing up there. Even Anthony Hopkins knows good things, even work, they will not ultimately satisfy as much as a growing relationship with the Lord and responding to what he has to say to us. So there's the problem of inattention in Haggai, but there's also the promise of God. The good news is then the promise of God. And the Lord communicates his presence with them in several different ways. Several times in our passage, he says to them, I am with you. I am with you. And those words would carry such a special meaning for God's people then, because that's a way of God saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've made a covenant promise to stay with you. All throughout Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you see this phrase over and over in which God says to his people, I'm with you. I know it doesn't look like it at times, but I am with you. I am with you. My gaze is directly upon you. People who knew Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, I've read several different interviews with people who knew him well, and there's one uh, commonality I found among the interviews of people who knew him well. Several people say that when they were talking with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., you, it, the, the people would say that, that, uh, that they felt like they were the only person in the room when talking with him because he listened to them so well. His gaze was directly upon them. They felt like, I always felt like I was the only person in the room, even though there might be hundreds of people in the room around him, when Martin Luther King was listening to me, they say. I can't but think that this is what God is saying to his people. Look, I'm focused on you. My gaze is on you. I am always with you. I'm never turning away from you. My focus is on you. So he says that over and over. First of all, I am with you. Then second, he describes himself constantly in Haggai as the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. Now God's people would hear that 
as the Lord of armies, the Lord of armies in heaven and on earth. It was meant to comfort them. It's another way of which God was saying to his people, I am with you. To get a sense of the armies of the, that the Lord has in, he, in heaven and on earth, we have to turn to a story then of Jesus. When he's being arrested, Peter, as you know, takes out a sword and slices the ear of a soldier. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, put your sword away. Don't you know that I can ask my father for 12 legions of angels right now? 12 legions of angels would be 50,000 angels at least. In that moment, Jesus says to Peter, I can call down armies right now, 50,000 angels, but I'm not going to do that because the kingdom of God does not come by the sword. It would be strange for God's people at this time, though, to hear God call himself the Lord of armies over and over again because God's people then don't have an army. They don't have any armies to conquer. They barely made it back to the Holy Land. They don't have any, any armies to defend themselves, they think, anyway. But God says, no, I'll defend you. I'm the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies in heaven and on earth. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. But God's people then, as much as they've been told that God is with them and they, the Lord of hosts is with them, they have experienced tremendous loss as they were taken away from their homes, started to build new lives, and then came back to their homes to try to pick up the pieces. They have lost a lot. The loss of land, first of all, they've come back and they don't have nearly the, the amount of land that they did before. The loss of relationships, the loss of that beautiful, ornate first temple that was crushed to the ground, built by King Solomon. They remember the former glory of the temple. They've lost a lot, and there is the loss of how life used to be for them that they remember. You've had a lot of loss this year, too. Tremendous loss this year. Maybe that's why this year, 2020, feels like about three years in, in one. And what are your losses this year? Would you reflect with me for a moment? about the losses that you've had too. For some of you, it's all sorts of different loss. The loss of work, the loss of work relationships, maybe the loss of strong relationships within families, the loss of relationships with neighbors. Maybe to some degree, the loss of your health. Your body feels this pandemic. You carry the stress of it with you. That's a real loss. And maybe like the people of God here in Haggai, you have this similar thought. If only life could get back to the way it was, to the former glory, to the former days. It's a loss of how life used to be. That's how we can relate to God's people then. But God makes a promise. He doesn't leave them there in a state of despair and lack of motivation he says to them, and he knows their loss as well. But he says to them, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will fill this house with glory. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former glory, says the Lord of hosts. For God made a promise to Abraham long ago that he would bless all the nations of the earth. And that promise comes through the family line of King David. And even though God's people were taken away into exile, that, that family line continues through Zerubbabel, for he's a descendant 
of David. And ultimately, this line through even Zerubbabel, who lacks motivation, this line of salvation will come through the greater glory of the temple that the Lord promises here. That greater glory is the very Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The former glory of the temple that Solomon created was limited in this geographic area to this one temple in Jerusalem. But the future glory of the temple will not be a temple made with hands. It will not be confined within four walls. That future glory of that temple then is seen in the the Son of God, born a baby in Bethlehem, who lives 33 years among his people. It gives a whole new meaning to the words, I am with you, when God takes on flesh and walks with his people. He puts his arm around his friends. He heals them. He eats fish with them. He laughs with them. He walks with them. He prays with and for them. And he suffers according to the scriptures and rises again on the third day. At one point, Jesus says to the religious leaders, destroy this temple in three days and I will rebuild it. And they don't understand what that means. And they respond and say, well, this this took us decades to build this second temple. What are you talking about? The apostle John explained it later and said, Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. Now, the disciples did not understand everything Jesus was doing, but at least they got that much, that Jesus was this future glory of the temple. So long ago, the Lord's glory, his presence was confined to a temple on a building in a hill in Jerusalem. And then Christ came and he became that future glory. Where is God now, though? Is God homeless in this world? Because Jesus ascended. He's at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Where is God now? Is he homeless? He is not. The temple now where God dwells is in everyone who trusts in Jesus. You are the temple of God if you've come to faith. His glory resides in you. And the Apostle Paul expands this understanding in the New Testament when he says the church is the body of Christ built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone, the whole structure joined together to grow together, as Paul writes, a holy temple of the Lord, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Isn't that amazing? To think that God was confined at one point by his own desire to four, staying within four walls there in that temple, and now he's in you. You are the temple of God. Paul even says this is a mystery that was hidden for ages, hidden from the saints, that now we begin to understand. And Paul says it's this, Christ in you, the hope of of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. God has a home, and that home is in you. So then what now? What do we do? Since Christ is in you, since you are the temple of God now, God desires you to live a joyful life. He wants you to be a blessing to everyone around you. What do we do? Well, God gives direction to the people of Haggai in chapter 2. He says, be strong, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I have made with you. Be strong in your faith. But if we're honest, maybe especially during this pandemic, we feel kind of weak, right? We feel weak in our faith oftentimes. And the scripture then cautions us and and points us to look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who gives strength. See, in chapter one, at the very end of chapter one in Haggai, 
It's not as if God just looks at his people and says, get to work, I need you to start building the temple. It actually says at the end of chapter one, the Lord began to stir the heart of Zerubbabel. The Lord began to stir the heart of Joshua, the high priest. The Lord began to stir the hearts of every one of his people there. God's people were not going to get to work unless God did it. God stirred the hearts of his people there in the year 520 and in 515, that second temple was built. God still does the same thing today. When we feel the weakness of our faith as we lack motivation, we start projects and don't finish them, he stirs our hearts. He stirs your heart and mine through the word, through sacraments, through fellowship with other people. There's no literal temple for us to build in Jerusalem, but there is work to do. We're to embrace the priorities of our Savior, the King who launched a kingdom. The scripture says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's not a temple in Jerusalem for us to work on, no. Jesus says, I have come that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This king inaugurated and launched his kingdom, God's kingdom. And so to build the temple today is to embrace the priorities of the king, which are chiefly twofold. First, to proclaim the word of God, that the word of God would dwell in us richly, that it would come out in the way we live our lives, in the words we say and offer to others, in the songs that we sing. First, to proclaim the word of God in every way out loud. And second, to push back against the powers of darkness and evil, including unbelief, unbelief in our families, unbelief in our neighborhoods, poverty, hatred, division, hunger, and more. The healing kingdom of God grows not through the sword. The Lord Jesus was clear about that with Peter. It does not grow and expand through the sword. The healing uh, kingdom of God grows through suffering. We know that as we look at our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The sufferings of Christ in his body and the sufferings that we endure now help to grow this kingdom. And the Apostle Paul writes to you and I, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What happened in the past is not worthy to be compared to the future glory that is to come. The promise of God then, the promise of God for you and I, is I am with you. And that the many losses, the many real and large losses that you've had this year have a future glory to be revealed to. The missionary Elizabeth Elliot put it well, and she said, your suffering is not for nothing. It's at least that. But the Apostle, says, the Apostle Paul says it's really much more. There is a later glory to be revealed that is far greater than the former glory. Will you pray with me, please? Our Father in heaven, we often have a weak faith. We often start projects and don't finish them. But our faith, Lord Jesus, is in you, and you are with us. Would you stir our hearts, Lord, to consider our ways, and would you stir our hearts to return to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.